Welcome to the teaching ministry at Carthus Creek Community Church. Well, good morning, everyone. Really glad that many of you are back uh, after a beautiful summer. Didn't we have an amazing summer finally this year? It was great. Yeah, it was uh, very good. Anyway, well, we welcome you uh, back. Um, I was finishing up some schooling uh, last week. The school I go to is in South California. It's in Pasadena, and its name is Fuller. Now, I really like my school. I've actually really appreciated my last four years there, my profs. I've become some, uh, some great, I've got some great friendships built with some fellow students. But I've got to admit this morning, truly, one of the things I love the most about this school is something that's not that spiritual. It's a five-minute walk from what they call in Pasadena, Old Town. This place is unbelievable. Street life architecture we don't have in Toronto. Cafes, amazing restaurants, shopping. It's sort of like Yorkdale meets Yorkville meets the distillery district meets every good restaurant in the T-Dot. So every night after slaving away at school, a few of my friends and I, we would go and we would suffer terribly for Jesus eating the best sushi, Mexican, Indian, and the list goes on and on. The oppression was so bad for me this year that I had to continually drink coffee that is so good, I can't even put it into words this morning. And I said to God, God, I'm willing. If you say send me, I'm ready to go again and again and again and again to South California. Now, a side note, if you're a coffee person, do you know what I mean by a coffee person? Raise your hand if you're a real coffee person. Okay. If you're ever in Chicago or L.A., you've got to have a coffee at Intelligentsia Cafe and Tea. I'm just saying. Best I've had on three continents. Now, some of you are going, John, thanks for the foodie report. I don't like coffee. I can't believe someone eats raw fish, and I'm confused. What in the world does this have to do at all with this new series we're starting called Back to Basics in the Book of Romans? Well, here it is, and it is connected. I was reflecting on my experience in that nightlife after school, and as I was walking around in Southern California, seeing every sort of person we would see in Toronto, men, women, every ethnic group under the sun, there was the rich, the middle class, and the poor were there too, I stopped and I realized something, something we all know, but I think I needed to realize again. Every single person around me at that moment was made for eternity. Every one of us on that street or in those restaurants was actually made in the same image, the image of God. Every person around me was touched by sin, and every one of us needed a Savior. From Barnes & Noble to every back alley I walked, the battle was real, and it was the same. A Savior was a necessity, but most, if not all, would never truly reach out and ask for that basic human need to be dealt with, that we all have that relationship with God. I thought again as I was walking through this amazing place on earth, heaven has to break in here because there is not enough of anything around me or in me to really look up to heaven and cry out, help. And then there's just the sheer diversity of people, right? Food and all all the reality of the complexity of all of us showing sort of the huge barriers we have trying to reach out to people. See, the truth is, thousands of years later, you and I, we together are still tribal. Don't believe it? Just look at the clothing brands you like or the computer brands, Apple, or food. Any of that shows how tribal we are. And so I stood there taking it all in, and then believe it or not, I began to reflect on this series. See, Romans as a letter 
gives us time and time again that answer we all primordially crave. Whether we know it or not, whether we're walking into good restaurants or we don't have the money to, whether we're doing the shopping thing or being in beautiful places, what we primordially crave is a relationship with God. And the Romans is going to show us time and time again not only how to access that relationship, but once it's given, if wanted, how to grow into it. It not only speaks to some, it actually speaks to everyone. And I love this. I love how the book of Romans, as we walk through, it, will speak to many of you who are not Christians, you who genuinely seek, you who are new in the faith, and many of us who've walked for a long time with Jesus. And so just like those restaurants I love, Romans will meet every one of us where we're at. And when we eat from this table, hear this. If you truly choose to eat from this table, your soul will be satisfied in a way that will outstrip any food or shopping or anything good, great, wonderful, or bad this world has to offer. It's better than the coffee I even drank. So I welcome you this, step, this fall, this day, to our new main series called Back to Basics. And as we walk together through the book of Romans, it's not just to learn about Christian doctrine and belief. But my prayer is that this will become a place to ask God himself to change every one of us here and watching and listening online. Every one of us in our thinking, in our worldview, and in our daily life. It is asking God to give this community hope to live an authentic life in this world right now. And at heart, Romans is a challenge both to followers of Jesus and those seeking to know truth, to live out truth, and then to encounter truth in Jesus. Now, before we begin our conversation, we need to get some context. We need to look around and see and understand why, the what, the where, and the when. Without this frame, this heaven-sent picture that God has given us as a community will not be interacted with as the grand artist God intended. So let's just start really simple, shall we? The letter of Romans is one of the most powerful and influential books ever written, ever penned in human history. You don't need to be a Christian to believe this. History itself bears it out. This letter has the power of an earthquake or a tsunami. We've seen the devastating side of those two things in the last century, in the last 10 years even. But in a religious sense, in a faith sense, this is the magnitude, the power that Romans has. And we need to understand that this morning. And see, for those who have dared to read this and then embrace what it was saying, they have so been changed themselves that everything around them began to change, not gradually, but actually very quickly. Here's just a few historic examples to get us started. Augustine received Jesus as Savior and Lord after reading Romans, specifically Romans 13. He became, to, he became one of the best church thinkers, theologians, and leaders we've ever seen in 2,000 years. It was 1,000 years later, a guy named Martin Luther in Germany penned these very words after reading this powerful letter. He said, night and day I pondered Romans until I finally understood its truth. I felt myself, I love this, reborn. This passage of Paul gave me a gateway back into heaven. Martin Luther, though he was a monk at that time, began to read Romans chapter 1 and rediscovered that it was not by what he did that gave him relationship, but it was Jesus' work alone. And out of that comes good works. And it changed the very face of the world. Several centuries later, May 24th, 1738 to be precise, there was another guy named John Wesley who wrote this as he actually read these words we're going to read today. He said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I suddenly felt that I really did trust Jesus and Jesus alone for my salvation. And suddenly I had an assurance that he really had taken away my sin. He would go on, of course, to change the world too. 
Romans would ignite the mind of Jonathan Edwards. It would be the basis for Wesley's friend George Whitfield and his preaching, which would so impact England and the Americas that it would save it from what went on in the French Revolution later across the pond. When reading the book of Romans, John Calvin wrote these words, When you gain a knowledge of Romans, you have an entrance open to you to all the most hidden scriptural treasures. In other words, modern vernacular, if you truly take the time to understand what God has given us in Romans, all of scripture will become clear to you. The famous 16th century Bible translator William Tyndale, who wrote the Bible for the first time in English, said this about Romans. It is the principle and most excellent part of the whole New Testament. No person can read it too often or study it too well. For the more it is studied, the easier it gets. The more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is. The more it is searched, the more precious things are found. Any of you read Pilgrim's Progress before? Pilgrim's Progress was inspired actually by the book of Romans as John Bunyan was sitting in a, in a jail in Bedford. When Nazism was growing all around Europe, there was a thinker named Karl Barth who realized that the church had capitulated and had given in and actually helped the Nazis to power in points because they had stopped preaching the gospel. This man named Karl Barth read the book of Romans and was so inspired, he wrote theology that has devastated false forms of Christianity even to this day. Now, I believe that Paul knew that what he was penning was powerful. I believe he knew it was heaven sent. I even believe he knew he had the authority to write scripture itself. But Paul did not fully know what was to come. Here's the truth. How many of us here right now, how many of you listening or watching at this moment met Jesus when hearing the words of Romans speak about God's justice and his mercy? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, or the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How many of us were broken by love? How many of us became speechless? How many of us were undone when we heard mercy and forgiveness was real and heaven only asked that we confess that Jesus was Lord and we believe in our heart God has raised him from the dead? And then these words, and you will be what? Saved. A word thrown around in church so much, but don't forget what it means. Freedom from our history, freedom from our present, freedom from our coming future, freedom from all the garbage we've done against ourselves and others and ultimately God. Satan's rule is broken over us and the certain knowledge that when we die, which we all will, that is not the end. So many of our holy histories are shaped by these words that have rippled down through the centuries. So many of our journeys have started and have been strengthened by the gift called Romans. The problem is, much of the time when we read it, if we dare, we forget what Romans is. Romans is a letter. It's not a textbook. It's not a systematic theology. It's not for just lofty people and great conceptual ideas. This is a letter sent to people. Now, it's an odd letter. I'll give this to you. It's a weird mix of a personal, deep, intimate email and sort of a large, thought-out presentation for a big crowd. But don't forget that though it's timeless, it actually is written to a church. It actually is written to a group of people, real people like us, trying to live a Christian life in a big, sound familiar, multicultural, urban city. It was a city full of wealth and poverty, ghettos of urban elite, the social middle class, and then there's the scarcity-stricken slums. Over one million people 2,000 years ago lived in Rome, and this is where the letter will be sent. It was written at the end of Paul's third missionary journey from the city of Corinth around 57 AD. Now, just some background. 
Paul himself did not found that church in Rome. This community starts in a different series we did a few years ago, 30 Years That Changed the World. It starts in the book of Acts. Peter is preaching to thousands and thousands of God-fearing Gentiles, non-Jews, and thousands of Jews as they're celebrating Passover in Jerusalem. And he stands up and proclaims in Acts 2 and speaks the first Christian message. And it says that 3,000 people on the spot become followers of Jesus. Now, if you read Acts 2.10, it says many of them were from Rome. Now, years later, they've traveled back, and large amount of Jews and non-Jews have become followers of Jesus, and they're trying to learn how to do church together, and things are, well, not going so well. And so this letter is sent to a mixed crowd because of the content of this letter. Actually, there's a great chance there are actually more non-Jews than Jews already gathering in the church in Rome. So we've got to look this year at Rome, uh, Romans like a mosaic, like a kaleidoscope, dealing with all sorts of different issues and different audiences, while at the same time understanding that what binds this book and this conversation together is Jesus, the good news, and the call for Christian community. Some of you who've maybe been on the journey for a while, a little bit longer, saying, but okay, sure, I know all that. But really, John, why was Romans really specifically written? Well, it's important that we get this today so we can go through this book with some freedom. There are four major reasons why the book of Romans was written. Here's the first one. Paul wanted to go suntanning in Spain. Seriously, Paul had a phenomenal vision to do something no Christian had done yet. Paul, at the end of his life, is looking past Rome, and he wanted to go all the way to Spain to plant churches. But he needed a sending base, and this sending base would be Rome. But remember, most of these Christians did not know him or had never met him. So he needed to prepare this group so they knew he was the real deal so he could get on to Spain and do the Jesus thing there. Here's the second reason. This letter was sent for one reason, or second reason, to confirm the gospel. Paul again and again was dealing with a group of people we've talked about here called Judaizers. They started teaching in the first 20 years of Christianity, look, we're great with Jesus, and, and he's the Messiah, and if you meet him, that's fine. But by the way, you have to fulfill all the Old Testament laws and have faith in Jesus, and then you're a real Christian. Paul was again going to address this in Romans like he did in Galatians and Philippians. You read it in Acts. That, no, no, that is not the gospel. It's Jesus alone, faith alone, grace alone. The third reason he deals with Romans is this. He needed to address some very serious fractured relationships between Jews and non-Jews that now made up this new community of faith. You've got to understand, 2,000 years ago, the Jewish community did not hang out with non-Jews unless they were God-fears and they were becoming part of the Jewish community. But now suddenly, all these people are meeting Jesus and all these people that would never, because of religious or social reasons, ever hang out together are now doing worship together. And so Paul needed to come and deal with theological and social and ethnic issues that were all starting to happen week by week. And here's the fourth reason. Paul simply wanted to show the world the grand plan of God and his salvation message for the world. So that's the overview. So if you've got a Bible, pull it out now. And turn to Romans 1. And just a side note again, we have public Wi-Fi now in here. So if you don't have a hard copy, get out your iPad, your Blackberry, your iPhone, whatever you carry. And you can turn that on and, and we'll read the scriptures together. Uh, Romans chapter 1 is where, of course, we'll begin. 
Paul starts this book, amazingly, with a view not of God, but himself. He needs them to know who he is so they just don't shut him down. And remember, Paul could have started the conversation like this, and and hear this clearly. He could have said, I am Paul, the profound theologian, master and king of the Old Testament scriptures. I'm a frontline warrior for Jesus, unlike many of you. And, And by the way, I'm smart, I'm brilliant, my middle name is intellect, and oh, did I mention that I can build tents from scratch? From scratch. And who are all you people? He could have said all of that with an arrogant tone because it was true. And if you read about Paul's life before he met Jesus, covered by religion, that's exactly who he was. But Paul doesn't start that way anymore. Paul turns around and says it this way. Paul, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now he just starts with his name. Hey, I'm Paul. Now many of us sitting here know part of Paul's story. Others don't know it at all, and some of us have a little. As I was praying and preparing over the last few weeks, I was reading some of Chuck Swindoll's work on this, and I think he summarized it best. I love his sort of biography channel summary of Paul's journey. This is how he said it. Paul's journey to this place and time, to writing Romans, is well been a winding one. Though born in the cosmopolitan hubbub of Tarsus, Paul actually matured somewhere else in the great shadow of the temple of Jerusalem. With its enormous, gleaming white walls, he learned at the feet of the most famous rabbi, Gamaliel. Though a Roman citizen, he was first and foremost a son of the Hebrews. He was a man of the covenant. He heard of the great privileges and responsibilities God had given his people. And he studied the law of Moses. He devoted himself to fulfilling every single letter in that tradition. He immersed himself in the rituals of a group called the Pharisees. And he had one singular goal in mind. This was his purpose statement. I love this. He wanted to become like the temple himself. Strong, undefiled, a worthy vessel. Strong and sacred for the righteousness of God. But often as it happens in the lives of great men... Paul's zealous pursuit of righteousness suddenly takes an unexpected turn. While on the road to Damascus, in order to silence and persecute Christians like many of you here now, Jesus himself, in a vision, confronted him, rebukes him, and changes him, and sets his life on a whole new course. The righteousness that Paul thought he could get was found not in the tradition of the Pharisees, but actually in the very faith of the people he was trying to murder. They would show their former persecutor, supernatural mercy and grace. First, they would embrace him. Remember, this is the man that supervised the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And then, by showing him the source of their goodness, they merely passed on the righteousness they had gained from Jesus through faith and grace. Paul's encounter with the risen Christ so transformed him that his future no longer lay in Jerusalem or or the works of the law, but now among non-Jews, who he used to, of course, despise and not be part of, preaching grace and living by faith, and instead of stamping out Christianity, he would become a tireless ambassador. Hear this, traveling more than, ready, 20,000 miles. No planes, right? No trains, no automobiles, only donkeys, and feet, and no Nikes, nothing, 20,000 miles, and he'd do this between Jerusalem and and Rome, and he'd proclaim the gospel to any person who wanted to hear it. At the end of his third missionary journey, after what most would say would be retirement time in an unbelievable life, then Paul says, no, no, I've got to get to Spain, the work's not done. 
That's the guy who says, good morning, everyone. My name's Paul. The very next word that comes out of his mouth, I don't think we get the impact this morning from English. He says, my name is Paul, and I just want to introduce my title this way. It's not reverend or doctor or PhD in any form. I just want to tell you I'm a servant. Now, servant sounds okay, I think, to us. But really, in Greek, what it means is slave. One put it this way, you know, Greeks and Romans despise slavery and slaves above anything else. They would object. They would not object to governmental service as long as it was voluntary. They believed in being good citizens and showing good virtue. But compulsory slave-like service, on the other hand, meant two things. You lost your freedom and you lost your dignity. So to use this is not just some popular thing to an overwhelming amount of people hearing this letter for the first time. And remember, half of Rome's one million person population were slaves. 500,000 people in Rome were bond servants or slaves. And Paul begins his conversation by saying, well, I just want to tell you, I'm a slave. The Gentile crowd would be going, what? We hate those people. Sorry, slave sitting beside me who became a Christian. But see, to the Hebrew ear, it was different. To the Jew actually sitting three, three, uh, three seats down, they would have got it. See, Abraham, Moses, and David were all called bondservants of God. Paul uses this so they all understand the height of God's mercy, but also the necessity of biblical slavery in this sense. Paul says, listen, I'm a servant, and, and by the way, here's another word I'll give you. I was called. I didn't set myself up for this. This is God's work. He decided before I was even born that my life would be for him. God chose to save me, and he saved me so I could serve a world that, be honest, doesn't even look for me, God, most of the time. Paul is called, and then he's called an apostle. You can see it behind me. Apostle just means sent one, envoy. Now, the gift of apostleship is around today, but the capital A apostles are gone. A capital A apostle was one who met Jesus face to face and was given the commission to do something in the New Testament. Really, they're almost equivalent to Old Testament prophets, and they all basically wrote scripture, or most of them did. And so Paul says, look, my name's Paul. I'm a slave to Jesus. He started this. I didn't. And by the way, I'm a sent one with some authority. And you know what he says next? I really was set apart. Now, I never got this until I read this this week. In Greek, the word set apart, ready, is Pharisee. It's the same word that the Pharisees used to say we're set apart because we're serious. Paul's now saying, even by using this little phrase, look, I was set apart the first half of my life for the Pharisees and for the law, but now I'm set apart for Jesus, and because of his work in me, the law now is actually in order. I'm a Pharisee, but I'm a Pharisee now in the real deal. And his life is about one thing. It's about one thing. One thing only. It's about the gospel of God. Gospel by the may means joyous news, a good report, a good story. Actually, in original language, it means this, that if there was a great victory won in a battle, a messenger would run and would give the gospel, the good news. Or also, this word was used, I love this, when a king and queen had a child and their line was secure, an heir was born. Did you catch it? The word gospel that Paul chooses here actually has Christmas and Easter in its very definition. The Son of God is born. He lives a perfect life. He crushes Satan's head. He deals with sin and death at the cross and resurrection. Victory and an heir. That is the good news. 
Paul says, I'm set apart for this gospel of God. The gospel that he promised, God promised uh, through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul says, look, you need to understand that God's been working on this for a long time. The whole Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, are all foreshadows, are all preparatory for the coming of Jesus. This has been the focus of God ever since we as humans walked out, of, out on him in Eden. The gospel was sung, spoken, and written down in the Old Testament. And Paul is about to quote the Old Testament 60 times in Romans. Jesus' birth, Jesus' life. Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, all talked about in the Old Testament. That he'd be born of a virgin, talked about in the Old Testament. That he was from the house of David, that he would be called Emmanuel, that he'd be murdered, and he'd be murdered actually outside the gates of Jerusalem. And that he would be murdered in a way where he would be pierced, but his bones would not be broken. That's exactly what happened on Good Friday. It's all there. Holy history is pushing and running towards that first Christmas. And as we prepare for Christmas, I've already got my Christmas carols going to you. Three weeks ago, sorry. As we do that, what did the angel sing about at the first Christmas? The angel said, and then they sang, fear not. I bring you what? The gospel. Good news for all people. What? Peace is about to be given and offered again. See, the heart of the gospel is not, hear this, self-help. The gospel is not about being good. It is not about being virtuous. It is not about being a moralist. It's not about being a Christian in name only, but the rest of the week, you don't look any different. It's not a set of dead beliefs or a new religion or philosophical system. The gospel is Jesus and the freedom he gives and the peace he brings in the now and in the coming not yet if you want it. Knowing that everything is about Jesus. Paul, as he's just beginning to unpack this conversation, says, I've got to stop right now in the first three and four verses and remind you who Jesus is and who he's not. He says these words, The gospel is regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David. Here's what Paul's saying to us today. Look, Jesus was fully human. This wasn't an act. This isn't a game. He didn't appear like a ghost as human, but he wasn't. Jesus was human, just like us. But that's not the end of the story. He's not just a man, not just a prophet, not just a great thinker, not just a miracle worker, an amazing order. No, no, he also is fully God, Emmanuel, God with us. That's why the next verse says this, And through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. If you're a highlighting person or a marking person, uh, highlight Spirit of holiness. That same Holy Spirit that hovered over creation came on Jesus at his baptism to affirm his identity and empower him to do all the amazing work he did is the same one that came on Jesus and rose him from the dead. Jesus' identity, hear this, was proven, was declared because he was really dead and he was brought back to life. The word declared actually is where we get our English word horizoned from. Someone put it this way, God's mighty deed in raising Jesus from the dead horizoned him, that is clearly marked him out as the son of God. Paul then is divinely set apart. He is the servant and his message is horizoned by the resurrection of Jesus who is both human and divine. The entire sky for Paul is filled with this reality. It is a vision that drives Paul to do anything for the kingdom of God and to serve in any way. Jesus is the Son of God. 
And the resurrection not only proves Jesus wasn't crazy or insane or the devil, but it's actually the grounding of our faith. We've talked about this before, but we need to be reminded all the time of this. If the resurrection did not happen, everything we do as Christians is useless and is garbage. I love what Paul actually wrote to churches in Corinth about this thing. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, If corpses can't be raised from the dead, then Jesus wasn't, because he really was dead. And if Jesus wasn't raised, then all you're doing is wandering about in the dark, lost as ever. And even worse, for those who have already died hoping in Jesus and his resurrection, they've already gone to their graves. And if all we get out, here's the key verse, if all we get out of Jesus is a little inspiration for a few short years, wow, we're a pretty sorry lot. But the truth is, Jesus Christ has been raised up. The first, I love this, and a long legacy of those that are going to leave the cemeteries. Amen would be good right out here. This is our hope. I love the idea that my grandfather is going to be raised from the dead. My grandmothers are going to be raised from the dead. My great-grandmother, who I only met as a child, who loved Jesus, she is not going to stay down in Toronto for the rest of her life. She is going to be raised because Jesus was raised. That is our hope, and that's where Paul grounds this whole conversation. He keeps going and says, through him, and for his namesake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from all non-Jewish areas, the Gentiles, to obedience that comes from faith. By God's work and his glory, he says, look, it's his deal. We got grace, salvation, guidance, wisdom, illumination, and side note, we got the Spirit of God who allows us to serve. And so we're going to take it to others. But notice this. It's huge. It's not a set of dead ideas. It's a genuine relationship. And it actually says that real faith, catch this, this is important, really does produce new life. Real faith always is marked out by obedience. If you meet Jesus as Savior, you always have to meet him as Lord. Paul, now nearing the end of his jam-packed introduction, turns to everyone listening and all of us reading it today and watching and says, and by the way, if you just thought I was on an ego trip and it was all about me, just want to help you out here, it's actually true about all of you too. And you also, you also are among those being called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. See that little phrase? It's important today. Especially in the whirlwind of a culture we live in. One little phrase. We are loved by God. Loved. I mean, like really loved. Cherished. Fought for. Chosen. He thinks about us. He thinks about you. He looks out for us. He's there in our pain and our joy. He actually, as the creator of the universe, really loves us. It was Jesus' best friend, John, who talks about that again and again in his writings. One pastor was preaching through Romans 1 actually went back to John 3.16 and wrote it out differently. And I thought it would be helpful for us today. I love this. Ready? Watch this. For God, the greatest lover, so loved in the greatest degree the world, the greatest company, that he gave the greatest act, his son, the greatest gift, that whosoever the greatest opportunity believes the greatest simplicity in him, the greatest attraction. You're not going to perish. 
the greatest promise, but, I love this, the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, the greatest possession. We are loved by God. And we know we are loved by God, Paul says, for these reasons. This is not just heady stuff. He says you are known because you are called. He called you. He stepped in just like he did with Paul. And he elected you. And he loved you when we did not love him. And he brought us life when we were dead. He adopted us. He predestined us. He made us. And then he says these words. Saints. Every Christian is a saint. Hear this. This is not somebody who works really hard their whole life and then gets first-class status while the rest of us go to heaven in economy or maybe don't make it. That's not what saint means. Saint means holy one, simply meaning as God the Father, hear this, right now looks at you. He sees you as perfect. Perfect. Right now, you're perfect because he looks at you and myself through Jesus' work. And not only that, holy means set apart. And this is important today. Set apart means you and me. We don't get to decide our destinies anymore. We're holy and perfected before God. And, oh, by the way, we're set apart for what he wants, not what we think we need or want. He says, you are called and you are saints. And then Paul ends by saying, grace, undeserved mercy, and peace, shalom, restoration between you and God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who is Messiah, anointed one, who also is Lord God himself. Now, how's that for an introduction to a letter? Yeah, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Now, as we begin this this year, here's a few things for us to think about, to maul about, to wrestle with as we get into this book. The first one is this. Again, like we always try to do here, if you are with us here present or online listening or watching, no matter age or stage, and and you have not embraced Jesus, you haven't done it yet, Here's what God is giving you today. In this simple introduction, you see everything we're about. You see who Jesus is, what he was all about, what the good news is, and what he's done already for you if you want it. The question that's going to face you now for this sermon series and the rest of your life is this, and one penned it this way. Will you allow God's transformation of the world to begin with you? As Paul will explain, and this is important, This is not an invitation to try harder or to be better or be moral or look Christian. But this is going to be a plea from God himself to you to submit to his mercy and grace before it is too late. That is what God is going to ask of you before it is too late. God's mercy is given only in time. And time will eventually end. That is his challenge to you because he loves you. Now, for us who are followers, just two thoughts as we begin. One of them is a challenge, and one of them is comfort. But let's embrace both. Here's the thing. It comes from the phrase, obedience that comes from faith. When we met Jesus initially, whether you were three or two or it was last week, we embrace someone who demands total allegiance. We embrace someone who said, you don't get to know me by what you do, but because of what I've done for you. And if you have truly embraced my son and the spirit of God is in you, then you have experienced something most in history never have. It's called relationship. But then he says, out of true faith must come obedience. It is connected 
And the question I ask to some of you this morning that have the title Christian is, is there any evidence of heaven's obedience in your life? Is there any evidence that really you're a follower of Jesus? I'm not talking about losing your salvation. Once you meet Jesus, you can't get him out. He loves you too much. You can't kick him out. He's in. The question being asked was, and is, sorry, were you ever a Christian in the first place? Is there any evidence of a godly obedience that actually comes out of faith? I'm not talking about struggle, but if nothing in your life looks different than a person beside you who has no relationship with God, you have a major question to ask yourself, and you need to ask it before time ends too. Paul would write this to the church in Corinth. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. Testing takes time. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? If you are not sure this morning, this is not about guilt or shame. This is actually about freedom. If you are truly not sure, then go before Jesus and call out to him and say, save me. Let my faith be so real that I am transformed and my life is so changed that everyone around me, including myself, will know it just can't be me. Give me a desire to be holy. Help me to serve people I love and I can't stand. Help me to be marked like Jesus who came to serve others and not be served. Help me to be like Paul who was walking one direction and ended up going the other. One of the scariest things in churches is so many have the title, but genuinely do not know the Lord Jesus. Paul, as he begins this journey with us, says, true faith produces over time genuine obedience. Ask God to challenge you this way because eternity's at stake. For some of you, this is the first conversation with God. For others of you, you've been around Jesus your whole life, but you don't know him yet. But to all of us that do, and that's not out of arrogance, it's just because he's walked in. Hear these words of comfort as we begin this year. This is what you are. And let me just pray for a moment. I ask you, Lord Jesus, by your spirit to actually make people's ears open their, their minds be able to understand this, and their hearts truly ready to hear this. I pray this for us and everyone listening and watching online. I pray this because we've heard these words so many times, and I don't think many of us believe them. So I ask you, your word will not turn void. Do this, I pray. Uh, amen. Here's the truth about us. The good news has been sung over you. The good news is your news. You are a child of grace. You were called before the beginning of time. Here's the greatest statement in here. You belong to God. You are a saint right now. You are loved by the living God of heaven and earth. This is how heaven looks at you now. You may not believe this about yourself, but you are not the author of reality he is. He says over you, you are loved. Your identity is never formed in what you have. It is never formed in your education. It is never formed by the racial background you have. It is not formed in the fullest sense by gender. It is not formed fully by what your parents said over you, good or bad. It is not said over you because of your sinful struggles or your history or what your friends or enemies have spoken over you or said over you. This is not how your identity is formed as a follower of Jesus. It is formed by what heaven says over you. And Paul begins the conversation by reminding all of us 
that we are saints, that we are called, that we are loved, that we are beloved. And if, hear me, if we take the time to ground our lives in that, and not what the world says, and not what our families say, and not what we say about ourselves, then, hear me, there will be freedom in this church we have never experienced. Why? Because the only voice that matters and lasts is God, and we actually believed Him. That is what we need to pray this year. It's true. So let us pray as we start this year this way, that many around us would meet the Jesus that Paul met. Let's start praying this year that those around us, and no judgment, that think they know Jesus and don't, would encounter him radically. And let's pray for all of us that our new grounding, that is very old for some of us, would actually start to take effect. Let's pray and respond together. Jesus, we come to you, the author of our faith. We come to you, Holy Father, Holy Spirit, true and living God of Israel and the church. So we're all here. We're starting a new year, Lord. Uh, We're about to unveil this vision series. We're praying for 10,000. We're praying for revival. All this stuff is going on. But right here, right now, here is our prayer, Lord. Here's our prayer to you, living Jesus. Number one, our prayer out of total humility is that many of our friends and our relatives, many people in and around us that have never met you, who are running from you, who are resistant to you, will get saved. And we're, we're asking this because, Lord, if you can save Paul, you can save anybody. And so right now, Lord, at this moment, we give to you names of people in our minds that we're asking for you to save. Take a moment to do that. Our second prayer, Lord, is this. You know who knows you. And Scripture says the heart is deceitful above all things. And so if there's anyone in Crothers Creek that has the title Christian, but has never genuinely met you, our prayer is for freedom and joy only. Would you convict them so they know? Would you convict us, any of us, we're open. Just do it, Lord, so they would be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name. And lastly, we come and we pray this over us as a community. God, remind us we are children of the good news. Remind us that we are children of grace. Remind us we are called, that we belong, that we are saints, that we are loved even when we mess up, that this is how you look at us. And what the devil says about us and the world says about us and even what we say about ourselves is not the authority anymore. Jesus, who is Lord, is our authority. And I pray that now, Jesus, please get it into our identities in a way that has never happened before. I'm just asking for freedom, Lord, because when your people aren't free, ministry gets hampered. So we ask, Lord, now for this revolution of identity. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And everyone said, Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, crotherscreek.ca.